MSW Media. The Justice Department charged the leader of the Oath Keepers and 10 other people with seditious conspiracy. Who's next? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name is Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, the host of the Patty Vasquez Show, who joins us regularly on this podcast. But before I bring in Patty, I want to thank BetterHelp for supporting On Topic. For 10% off your first month, go to betterhelp.com slash on topic. Start living a better life today. I also want to thank the people who've taken so much time to support our podcast over the years, uh, particularly James Frohmeyer, Jay Gelhausen, Jamie and Izzy Gordon, Patrick, Angela Jackson, Ari Lamstein, Dan Maruska, Joe Targonsky, Shana Wachinski, and an anonymous patron. So now let's bring in Patty Vasquez. So, Patty, I got to tell you, this is quite an indictment. You know, before we had this indictment come out, I think we were on your radio show talking about how frustrated a lot of your listeners were uh, with, you know, the Justice Department and Merrick Garland, and they they felt like they weren't doing anything at all. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, you know, if you listen to my station, WCPT in Chicago, I mean, Joan Esposito especially uh, is so frustrated with Garland and, and the DOJ, and people feel like, you know, are they just going to roll over because, you know, is this their way of thinking, well, what's better if we heal, we don't cause more division. I think that's what people were starting to just go, okay, fine, nothing's going to happen. Uh, and you had all these folks who were like, well, if it was an insurrection, where are the charges? So this helps, certainly. I think <laughs> people are feeling a little better this week. You know, it's interesting. If you had asked me when I was interviewed on your, when you interviewed me on your show a week ago, whenever it was, and you said, what are your, uh, what do you think the odds are that we're going to get a seditious conspiracy indictment in the next month or two? I'd be like, man, oh, those are pretty long odds. I would have given you a lot. Uh, I would have bet pretty heavily on the, on the no, uh, uh, no side of that ledger. Uh, and, and there's a couple of reasons why, Patty. First of all, investigations take a long time. People in the public are always upset that they're not, they're not going fast enough. Uh, that's been a recurring theme. But in my, in my experience, these things take many years. But then secondly, this is sedition. This is this just conspiracy. I mean, that's, that's something almost never charged. I mean, when I looked up that statute uh, of, you know, a few weeks back when I was writing a piece for Politico, like since the Civil War, when, of course, there's a bunch of charges, there has not been a lot. I mean, some Al Qaeda guys, a bunch of some militia guys in Michigan actually got off. Uh, they, they got they beat the charges. It's just like a very difficult. It seems like a very difficult statute to charge. Does not seem like the sort of thing Merrick Garland would want to roll the dice on. And yet here we are. Well, do you feel like he's rolling the dice? Because you often talk about how prosecutors aren't going to bring charges unless they're fairly certain they've got the, the you know, someone dead to rights. You know, they usually don't. I mean, usually prosecutors are very, very, very cautious. Okay. So they're very reluctant to do it. And I think what happened here 
is I do think the public perception and frankly perception by some judges that the Justice Department was not charging this in an aggressive way probably played some role because the Justice Department's mission is general deterrence. And I think the perception on both sides of the aisle that this was sort of not serious. These were not serious crimes. They were charged in a serious way was potentially I think it may have had an impact because I think that the Justice Department may have said we need to send a message that this is a very serious crime. Now, one thing I will note will note to you, Patty, is that they did charge more, I would say, bread and butter crimes, more, more, more easy, like less risky crimes alongside the the the, the seditious conspiracy and prosecutors do that uh fair you know uh, fairly regularly where they kind of have a backstop in other words i mean even if the seditious conspiracy charges fail they're going to get the guys on uh conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding and they're going to get the same penalty anyway and i know when i was uh, charging i i had when i was a prosecutor i i had a first of its kind case where i, where I was the first person to first prosecutor to charge a case under a particular statute that Congress enacted. And we charge it alongside some other old statute. So in either way, even if the statute got stricken down or there's some issue, legal challenge, we had the other statute as a backup. Well, and, and, you know, is the, I have a question about these charges too. Is the justice department the only one that can bring charges of sedition? Well, that's a great question. I mean, that there are, I, I, I'm not sure whether or not there are state and local laws against sedition. It's not the sort of thing that there usually would be, I I would think. Uh, I'm not licensed in D.C. and Virginia where these folks are, so I don't know off the top of my head. I'm I'm only uh, an Illinois and California lawyer. Um, But but I would have to say I, I would be very surprised if a state prosecutor took up this sort of a case. Very complicated, very difficult. And also, by the way, there's a massive amount of federal resources getting plowed into this. I, I will say this. I don't think people realize all these, you know, random bozos uh, who are attacking our capital who've gotten charged. You know, even the ones that we can laugh at because they're like, you know, they're posting uh, photos of them on Instagram dancing in the Capitol or whatever. Those people, uh, there's significant resources that go into charging them. And the number of prosecutors in the many thousands of hours that have gone into those cases, pretty significant. And so I, I think uh, any state prosecutor who wants to get in the middle of that is probably going to have a lot of trouble, um, given that the you know the doing anything more than the DOJ has been able to do here. Well, and you've talked about how surprised you are that Merrick Garland went in this direction. Do you think there was anything behind that? Do you have any thoughts on why he has brought sedition charges? Yeah, I do think that... There is uh there there was an intent to send a message. I think the Justice Department wanted to send a message here, which is we are taking this seriously. The attack on our capital was a serious event. Uh I think, you know, the fact that you had a lot of people, media outlets, right wing media outlets, you know, treating this as if it was a prank. Like, you know, like kids at the local high school, uh, you know whatever, you know, uh, doing a, having a homecoming prank or something versus in a serious attack in which not only were many people scared, scared uh, out of their wits, but also people had, you know, injuries, both physical and mental. And so, so, you know, at least one, well, many, multiple people died. Uh, And to me, I think that the, what the justice department wanted to do is send a message 
uh, well called general deterrence, which is to tell the public, hey, if you want to stage another attack like this, that's a really bad idea uh, because we're not just going to charge you with uh, uh, trespass on the Capitol grounds, which is a lot of effectively what a lot of these guys and, and, and men and women got charged with. But I think, you, you know, there's a more serious charge out there. And I think it has, by the way, already had an impact. I mean, do you remember when they had that second rally? They're like, oh, there's another one where all they're all going to show up again. Right. Uh, right? And then none of them showed up, right? Because no, this time around, there's, they know there's all these National Guard there and uh, they're going to get arrested this time. And I think that, that I think law, law enforcement does have an impact in that regard. Well, I think a lot of people are curious because while this these were charges against members of the Oath Keepers, you know, folks want to know about the three percenters and the Proud Boys and people who maybe funded, like, let's say Clarence Thomas's wife, Ginny, who paid for buses to go to the to these uh, quote unquote rallies or, as you mentioned, a high school prank. Basically, they're just going to TP the White House, apparently. But, you know, people have questions about other, you know, do you, if, if this is just a message, then do you, do you suspect that this might be the end of it or there might be more sedition charges against uh, people who funded it, other groups like the Three Percenters and the Proud Boys? Yeah, well, first of all, I would not be surprised if, if other folks who are involved in this are charged. In fact, I would be surprised if there weren't. In other, in other words, if you read the indictments, you'll actually see references to people that they took their names out, but they kind of refer to them by titles and so forth. So some of these people who are chit-chatting with the criminals in the midst of the conspiracy, the alleged criminals, I should say, uh, those people who are an insurrectionist, whatever— those people, I think, are certainly you know within the scope of the DOJ's investigation. I doubt the DOJ has all these intercepted communications in the midst of the conspiracy, and they aren't building a case there. Now, the Pro- I don't know about specific groups. I will say the Proud Boys, I often confuse the names of the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, very similar organization. But I, do, I will say I do think that others in that vein are going to get charged. Now, the funders, I think it's, um, it's more challenging. Here's what the government's going to have to prove for the funders. They're going to need to prove that those people knew when they were providing the funding that it was going to result in, let's say, an insurrection or some other crime like trespass into the Capitol or whatever. In other words, let's just say that that hypothetical person X bought hypothetical person bought stuff to help you break down windows to get into the Capitol. Like that's a problem for that person, because I don't know what the legitimate purpose is of your lockpick or whatever it might be. But like people who are just giving money for buses, they're going to say they were doing it for a rally. It's easy to see how a jury's going to have reasonable doubt and buy that. Uh, and so that's that's the challenge. Whereas these guys, these guys with your with the military training or storming into the Capitol or organizing that like those guys, they, that, that's, it's much easier, right, to, to bring charges against them. But it seems, I mean, a lot of those folks, and including someone like Jenny Thomas, who basically was saying, you know, encouraging people to interrupt the process. And what did they think that, that you know, the process of verifying the election, what did they think that was going to look like? Because that seemed to be what Trump was sending folks off to and telling them to march down to the Capitol. And, and the same thing was sending busloads of people like it, it just I, I guess you're right. They would have to be specific. But I, I do have another question about Merrick Garland, because you've talked about I mean, a lot of folks have a lot of respect for the way he does these investigations, the way he has prosecuted in the past. But you've also, I think, mentioned that you think that the public opinion might have had some play. Am I, am I understanding that correctly? Well, I think that how this has been perceived by the public on really on both sides of the aisle, the prosecutions thus far, 
I think had to be concerning for the Justice Department. In other words, the Justice Department put forth a massive amount of resources, Patty. For them to be arresting hundreds and hundreds of people, I think it's 700 plus, if I remember right, okay, uh, it, people in connection with the insurrection, and put all of these you know, hours and resources and money all into doing that. And then to have people say, oh, yeah, they're all let off scot-free and the Justice Department's not doing anything. And this isn't a serious crime. And it's not an insurrection because they didn't charge with that. I'm sure the Justice Department's like, okay, we really want some deterrence here. We want to make sure that, you know, for all this, get some bang for our buck here. I mean, one of the one of the things that prosecutors are concerned about is, and this was the case in every kind of crime, when I would do white collar uh, prosecutions, the concern was, okay, why are we doing this case? Like, why are we picking this one to do? And I think, you know, a part of one of the arguments often is general deterrence and, and trying to make sure others don't, don't commit the same act. So I think that's part of it. I think the fact that the public perceived this to, to us, to, uh, you know, perceived, a, uh, perceived this to be just a slap in the wrist sort of thing, I think, or not being taken seriously. I, I imagine that was concerning to the justice department. Well, then can we be louder about how we don't think that Trump has been given enough of a <laughs> can we can we sway them with public opinion that more needs to be done with the president, with uh, former yeah. Trump? I mean, I, I mean, oh, look, everyone should be exercising their First Amendment rights. But this is what I'm going to say to everybody who's a listener here, because I, I know there's a lot of folks who come out and say and, and you know, that it's going to happen. Even my look, there are things that I, I'm sure our guest is going to say that I want 100 percent agree with, I, you know. Uh, where people will hint that Trump may be going down, justice is coming, whatever the euphemism is. And uh, and I, I'm not, you know, I wouldn't bet my life on that. Of course, I wouldn't have bet my life on uh, sedition, seditious conspiracy charges either. But what I will say is this. Uh, make your voice loud and clear and, and, and advocate for whatever you think sh- the justice should be. But on the same token, don't put all your eggs in that basket, okay? Because relying on federal law enforcement to solve society's problems uh, is usually a losing bet. And if somebody spent time in federal law enforcement, uh, uh, what I think, they're not good at that stuff. What they're good at is they're good at identifying specific crimes and building meticulous cases against in certain limited cases. But here we have a systemic problem, a, a coordinated attack on our democracy, a, a person in Donald Trump, but a movement behind him that would, will live on past, he, past him of people who do not believe in the democratic process or trying to subvert our democratic process and are trying to, in, to mislead others and indoctrinate others into trying to undermine your voice and your vote. And so if... To me, the biggest thing that people can do is to not get apathetic, particularly about the elections that are going to be later this year, because I think a lot of us are tired. It's been a long it was a long four years. And now we got covid that we have to deal, you know, these covid wave after wave. People are tired. But I think we need to untired ourselves uh, and that that is just part of what we're going to have to do uh, to to try to to deal with this attack on our democracy. Fire up the coffee, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there you go. Exactly. Double espresso. All, all right. Well, look, uh, bef- I, I'm going to be bringing in our guest in just a moment. But before I bring in our special guest, I want to let you know that today's podcast is brought to you by BetterHelp, bringing you professional online counseling whenever you need it most. Advice from friends and family can be very helpful. But what about when that's not enough? BetterHelp will help you assess your needs and match you with a licensed professional therapist. It's online, safe, private, and convenient. 
You can message your counselor anytime from anywhere and get timely and thoughtful responses. No waiting rooms, no offices. It's safe, private, comfortable, and convenient. Finding the right professional to talk to is extremely important. That's why BetterHelp makes it free and easy to change counselors if you need to. They're also more affordable than offline counseling and even offer financial aid. BetterHelp is not a crisis line self-help. It's actual professional counseling, and their licensed professionals specialize in depression, anxiety, family conflicts, trauma, grief, and many other areas. So start living a happier life today. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash on topic. That's BetterHelp.com slash on topic for 10% off your first month. Thanks, BetterHelp. So now let's bring in our guest, Frank Figliusi. He is the Nash, a national security contributor and regular columnist for NBC News and MSNBC. I'm sure you've seen him on MSNBC many times. He's actually going to be on tonight after our interview. Uh, but more importantly, uh, for, uh, for this uh, matter, he was the assistant director for counterintelligence at the FBI. He served... 25 years as an FBI special agent, and at one point he directed all espionage investigations across the government. And he is also the author of The FBI Way, Inside the Bureau, Code of Excellence, which you can pick up at any uh, bookstore or online bookstore near you. So let's bring in Frank uh, to have our discussion about seditious conspiracy. Welcome to the podcast, Frank. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm glad we could do it, uh, Renaud. It's been a while since we last talked. Yeah, absolutely. And what an occasion to, to talk about uh, this subject. You know, I have to say, Frank, I was uh, I was actually uh, really pleasantly surprised by this indictment. I, I thought there were, they were going to be pretty cautious. They seemed pretty cautious, again, pretty cautious approach towards this investigation. A lot of charges for obstructing a... Um, official proceeding, but this is, I think, it, it, the the charge of seditious conspiracy really turned it up a notch. I, I'm with you um, in that we know collectively, historically, it's a big deal to charge seditious conspiracy. And more recently, when the Justice Department has tried it, they've failed. So, you know, they, they, they failed with regard to a case of a militia group in Michigan, for example. So if you look historically, and even if you want to throw in treason and combine treason and seditious conspiracy together, I think in the history of the U.S., it's been successfully used less than a dozen times. And what did we see the other day? Eleven people charged in one day. So what does that tell me? They've got the goods on these folks. They feel comfortable doing this. they And what does that mean? Well, if you read through the 40-some-odd page indictment, you can see evidence that they've got comms. They've got communications, encrypted communications that they may have broken or someone's given them a password to. They may have sources, informants. They've got it. And and they've charged it. And, and I applaud it. You know, I got to say, part of what I see here, too, is I actually see a Justice Department trying to make a statement. I, I think that there was a sense to which they they did not want the message to be sent that this attack on the Capitol wasn't serious. There was a perception that they weren't acting seriously enough, which I think a lot was unfair. But nonetheless, uh, I, I actually think the Justice Department here um, made an, some aggressive charges in part because they wanted to make this, send the statement 
that if you organize an attack like this, that there's going to be serious consequences. And, and uh, you know, that that's sort of how I read this, uh, read this indictment from my perspective, because you could see, you know, one one I know question viewers had is they did have other charges here. They had like obstruction of an official proceeding. So even if the seditious conspiracy charges don't work, they've got a backup. That's right. We've seen superseding charges. We've seen uh, these tacked on to people already charged. You, you're right. I think, you know, there's a fine balance here. You never want a Justice Department that is responding to public uh, pressures. You you never want a Justice Department that's doing something simply for the sake of planting a flag or making a statement. It's got to be evidence based. But I do have to say, when federal judges in these in these capital riot cases are saying to prosecutors, hey, how come how come we're not seeing more serious charges? Right. And you can see the frustration across the federal bench there. Uh, I'm sure that has an impact, but I'm also equally sure that the evidence is there and and it's laid out exhaustively in this indictment. And I have to tell you, I believe there's even more coming. And I say that because I've been watching carefully reporting on cross communications between Oath Keepers, Proud Boys, Three Percenters. I would not be surprised if we see a conspiracy that involves all three of those groups and therefore possibly seditious conspiracy charges against members of those groups. Let's not forget who Merrick Garland is. The, guy, the guy's been involved with serious terrorism before. He helped prosecute the Oklahoma City Federal Building bombing. He knows domestic terrorism when he sees it. That's still the largest, the most deadly domestic terrorism attack in U.S. history. He, helped, uh, he was involved in decision-making with the Unabomber case. He, he gets it, and I, he just wanted to wait for the right time. You know, that really brings us to a great question from our viewers. I think a lot of there's a lot of focus on what one thing that you just said about what what might come next. Patty, do you have a question along those lines? I sure do. With investigating and filing conspiracy charges in such an infrequently charged area of sedition, what are some key indicators for the general public to understand how far the conspiracy may extend beyond just those individuals recently charged? Yeah, we're all looking to read those tea leaves, right? Uh, and and here's what some of the things I'm, I'm seeing, which is um, when you read through the indictment, one of the things that pops at me is money. When you hear about the money on weaponry and, you know, uh, night vision devices, uh, anti-ballistic uh, 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 plates for your vest, body armor, um, you know, these QRF forces, the radio communications Look, somebody is funding this. Now, is this coming from membership dues in the Oath Keepers? Are they all, is, is all your membership fee going toward weaponry? But I think, I think follow the money is going to be really smart here. So that's one of the tea leaves I, I think we're going to need to keep our eyes on. The cross communication between other like-minded groups, definitely. But here's the bottom line for me, where this is headed. This group, so you go, okay, these are 11 guys and a much larger Oath Keepers presence, all military training, et cetera. But guess what? You get a SWAT team or even a well-trained SWAT team. Let's take an FBI field office team. Let's get them marching toward the Capitol on any given day. Any given day, no crowd, no crowd. They're going to get shot dead um, trying to get, in, to get in, the, in the Capitol. Where am I going with this? This group needed the cover of the crowd. They needed, this only succeeds. They only get in that building without getting shot dead with the crowd cover and the push of the crowd. They know that 
and someone else knows that. So where I'm going with this is, yep, trained military vets. Yeah, I got that. 11 guys. Yeah, I got that. This doesn't work without the crowd. Who orchestrated the crowd? You and I know the rally that day, the president says, we're all going to march down to the Capitol and fight for our country. We know Rudy Giuliani says we need trial by combat. We know there's a war room at the Willard. We know Steve Bannon's involved. We know there are buses of people being bussed in for the rally. This doesn't work without that crowd. And that's where I think the investigation is going. The coordination between the violent Oath Keepers guys and the crowd, the, 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 the construct of, the, of making that crowd happen to get them in that building. I just want to add, you know, when I look at this indictment, I'm looking at it as uh, as a criminal, uh, well, not a criminal defense lawyer, a former federal prosecutor. I look at the people who are referred to in this indictment. You know, I, I, one thing that Frank talked about was, you know, some of the crosstalk here. And you'll see, for example, in paragraph 88 uh, of the Rhodes indictment, he talks about he's going to link up with and then they put in brackets the operation leader and they refer to that operation leader elsewhere uh you know in the uh, indictment whenever there's somebody who isn't named but is talking to the bad guys in the middle of the criminal activity um but you know is referred to that's often somebody that they are building evidence against but they don't have evidence against yet so you know these guys are coordinating with a number of others i would suspect that uh the prosecutors going to be looking to try to flip some of these folks to get evidence against those others. And I know, Patty, we did have a question from our listeners along that line as well. Oh, absolutely. How likely are these indictments uh, to lead to fl flips on bigger targets? So let's let's look at the maximum sentence possible for seditious conspiracy. It's 20 years in federal prison. And I have to tell you, if you have 11 folks looking at 20 years possibly in prison, I would say at least two of them are going to say, uh, no, thank you. Not doing that. And they're and and they will eventually flip. At what stage in the process? I don't know. Is there cooperation needed? Oh, well, it's always helpful, right? You, but if you've got people's communications, you've broken their encryption. You're you're confident enough to charge seditious conspiracy. Do you need them? Maybe not. But absolutely, they help. Now, at what level of knowledge they are, and the, the degree to which. They compartmented their knowledge, you know, kind of a need to know. Look, army guys, cops, they, they know the concept of need to know. So you don't necessarily tell the, the lower level folks on your team everything you know. Hey, we're coordinating with, you know, the president or, or Roger Stone. We, you don't necessarily let that filter down. So who flips is important as is as important as when they flip. Now, uh, Stuart, Stuart Rhodes, Stuart Rhodes uh, I'd be... I'd be surprised if he cooperates, and I'll, I'll tell you why. The, the The legacy that we know of him, his background, his his uh, his history, he thinks he's a mythological historical figure. He thinks he was born to be this person that goes down in history as fighting against the evil government, and he's even reportedly compared himself to Martin Luther King. When you've got when you've got that in your head. You're unlikely to go, yeah, okay, never mind. You know, but I think he sees himself as having to go to prison. And that's going to be a tough guy to crack. 
Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I'll, I'll just uh, give my perspective on this. It's, it's really cool, by the way, here you're getting the perspective of somebody who not only you're an FBI agent, but a real official, uh, had a pretty significant role at the FBI, I would say. Uh, so you're, 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 you're getting an investigator, you're getting a lawyer. I'll say from a lawyer, lawyer's perspective in terms of flipping, I think one of the things that has to have a defense attorney concerned here is that so ordinarily there's these maximum possible penalties. I'm sure all our listeners are familiar, like Paul Manafort's looking at a hundred something years in prison, right? And then the actual sentence is much lower. I know everyone gets uh, used to that, right? In these particularly white collar cases where a guy, you know, I'll, I'll have, let's say, uh, you know, I would prosecute some guy for fraud. He'd look at, you know, all these stacking 20 year maximums and he'd end up with three years in prison. Well, the difference here is these guys are involved in a pretty violent attack on our capital. A lot of jurors are going to hate these guys. A lot of judges aren't going to like these guys either. And if you're a defense attorney, you really have to caution your client here that you really there's not a lot of analogs to this case. And if you get the wrong judge, the judge could just launch them in terms of a penalty. So if I was representing one of these gentlemen, I, I would tell them that their best hope here is actually a legal kind of defense. You know, Frank was talking about uh, about the challenges that the Justice Department has with sedition cases. There certainly are going to be various legalistic arguments. You're going to make various motions and so forth and try to challenge this on sort of uh, legal grounds. But if this gets to a jury, man, jury's not going to like these guys. They're not going to sort of be trying to squint and, you know, look at the fine print to get, you know, jump through hoops to let these guys off. That's my my gut on this. And if you get the wrong judge, a judge is going to look at these guys like some of the judges you were talking about a minute ago, Frank, where you're basically right. I think that a lot of judges are like, why are these people not being charged with something more serious? You get the wrong judge here. Uh, for from you know, for a defense attorney, could just look at their client going to prison for the greater portion of their lives, and so I th- I agree with you, Frank, that that folks are gonna are gonna flip, and that's sort of my my thought process of looking at it. I, I share that, and and the other thing, and, and I want to be clear here, this stuff will never see the light of day in a courtroom prosecution because it'll be deemed uh, irrelevant or prejudicial. Um. But I just want to take this moment to point out what a miserable individual Stuart Rhodes is. So why am I doing this? The cops, the vets, the military guys who sign up for this and think he's some kind of hero for a cause. Let me explain what's starting to come out about Mr. Rhodes. His ex-wife multiple times filed uh, for restraining orders, calls for service from the police department. This is a man who has physically and mentally abused his wife. His children has waved a gun at them, pointed a gun at them multiple times, has taken his at the time his teenage daughter by the throat and slammed her against the wall. Um, I, this is no hero for anybody thinking this man is something to look up to um, is, you know, is some kind of guy that you want to follow through a brick wall. That ain't him. And um, the guy is a miscreant. Uh, and and that's that's who was leading this charge. So lest anyone think that he's some high-minded, principled individual, read his wife's affidavits and applications for restraining orders. Yeah, it's crazy for me to think, Frank, because uh, Mr. Rhodes actually went to the Yale Law School a few years after me. So I- <laughs> what is going on? What's going on with these Ivy League degrees, Renata? I know, exactly. Exactly. I don't know what the admissions department uh 
has got some got some explaining to do. Ah, uh, you know, I will say, you know, I, one thing I wanted to ask you about is when you were at the FBI. I know that one of the concerns was domestic terrorism. It's a touchy subject because obviously. You'd always there's a concern with the government investigating its own citizens, right? And and you know the line between let's say a lawful protester versus somebody who's engaged in domestic terrorism. And I, I, I was hoping you could give us some context and, and enlighten us on this growing threat that we're seeing from domestic terrorism, and, and what do you think the FBI's response to that should be? Well, you know, it's a timely topic for many reasons, but not the least of which is just a few days ago, DOJ announced this new domestic terrorism unit uh, at DOJ headquarters for, for prosecutors. And I, I got to tell you, I, I read that announcement and went, wait, wait a minute, you, you didn't already have a domestic terrorism unit? So at, at the FBI, right across the street, there's entire sections for domestic terrorism and with, you know, staffed with multiple units. So um, I was kind of like, yes, uh, amen to the new unit, but my God, it, you didn't have one yet. So here's the problem. As you cited, we none of us want an FBI that is looking at all of our communications, infiltrating every backyard barbecue poker game, right, just on the hopes that they might find some violent plan. We, nobody wants that. That's China. That's Russia. You know, China, there's somebody on every block who reports to the government about what's going on with the neighbors, right? No, no, no. So that that legit concern about preserving civil liberties, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, has always um, understandably curtailed the FBI's approach to domestic terrorism, almost, and this is a slight exaggeration, but almost to the point where they had to wait for the violence to happen before they could open a case. And in fact, that's kind of what happened with January 6th. Oh, We've had a disaster. Now we can open a case. Thank goodness. Right. But you got it. That's too late. The carnage has already happened. So what I think we're seeing now is DOJ saying, and, and I want to blame this on the lawyers, Renato, but it is convenient. But when I talk to sources at the FBI now, who, uh, you know, some of whom were my colleagues, um, they go, Frank, this was this was the lawyers. You know, I go I, when I say, what the hell happened? The, the lawyers were saying, no, free speech, free speech, freedom of, no, no. And so that's what's got to change there. The FBI already has the ability to open preliminary inquiries, what's called threat assessments to look at intelligence. And I have to tell you, they open a threat assessment for things like the Super Bowl, July 4th fireworks on the mall at D.C. They open a threat assessment for any intel gathering, right? They didn't do that for the peaceful transfer of power and the ratification of the Electoral College vote on January 6th. They didn't even open a threat assessment. So I'm saying we don't need to break the law. We don't need to abuse civil liberties. We need to unabashedly use the tools that currently exist, threat assessment, preliminary inquiry, uh, which, by the way, what you say, what the hell is a threat assessment? It allows you to collect available open source data. What's that mean? You can look at Google, Facebook, and Twitter, and Parler, and you you can do that for a specific event. So, you know, they need to do that. And then, of course, I'm always on my high horse saying we still don't have a domestic terrorism law, Renato, and that just blows my mind. We we need to make what happened on January 6th against the law um, and call it what it is, domestic terrorism. Yeah, it's interesting. I, one thing that has not been enough of a focus here, Frank, I think of, of folks 
who are upset about this. You know, I've been on you know Twitter now for months where people are always asking me, when is Trump going to get indicted? When is this guy getting indicted and that? But the, what I haven't seen a lot of focus on is, first of all, how can we make our laws better so that next time around we have better tools, prosecutors and law enforcement have better tools to use? So that's why I like your your the point you're making about the domestic terrorism law. Another thing that I feel like we haven't done enough of is introspection and examination of the decisions made by the Justice Department during the Trump era. I'm very disappointed. You know, a lot of folks were critical of Merrick Garland about charging stuff. I'm I'm not as much, but I am very critical of what I don't see as the DOJ publicly coming forward and saying we need we are reexamining some of these decisions we made. I I don't I question whether or not there was what the motivations were. I, I think we should we deserve a public accounting as to the motivations behind not, you know, having a more fulsome investigation and preventative measures and plan of action regarding the January 6th attack. And so and I and I will just say I, I'm perfectly cognizant of the fact that if there's a Trump two administration or Ron DeSantis administration, they may regard indivisible as domestic terrorists. So I'm perfectly cognizant of that, but I do think in this in this instance, we deserve to have some public discussion of that issue. So let me echo that and point out that I I hope and I do believe that just as a serious physical security review was done of January 6th, right? And we came out with this with this very comprehensive review, one of which was conducted by a retired general honoré who said things like, hey, you need to hire like, you know, 700 more officers. Um, You don't have a quick reaction force. This is another shocker, by the way. There's no quick reaction force for the Washington, D.C. area for the iconic targets, Supreme Court, Justice Building, um, National Archives that you you would, you know, you you would see attacked. no. Who had a quick reaction force that day? Uh, the Oath Keepers. Yep. Staged all over the place. But but no. So just like you have a physical security review. Yes, we need a review of the intelligence and law enforcement lapses that led up to January 6th. And just as we did with 9-11, we need to have a comprehensive review of what needs to get tweaked, what what rules and and uh, allowable investigative te- techniques need to be enhanced or put in place. And it may be that Merrick Garland, who's not a knee-jerk guy, doesn't want to come right out and quickly say, yep, by God, I'm advocating for the following changes and rules. Maybe he wants that co- the power of that bipartisan congressional committee to say, yeah, we it's time to allow wiretaps when this and this happens. Or it's, you know, we or it's time to advocate for domestic terrorism law. Now, all that's very, very nice, but um, I don't know if we'll still be alive when uh, the House and the Senate will come to agreement on language for domestic terrorism. But yes, that review needs to happen. And I, I think the FBI and DOJ officials are testifying behind closed doors to the committee. Well, I'm glad to hear that, that there is testimony to the committee behind closed doors. I was I, I'm concerned. I was concerned about that. I do feel that, like, as you pointed out, Frank, 9-11 was a, a turning point. And, you know, as well as I do, the, the emphasis that's put on terrorism in, by in counterterrorism by the FBI, that work, very significant expenditure of resources to this day as a result of 9-11 and what was perceived as a uh, very significant uh, la- you know, uh, or insufficient lapses, uh, I- insufficient uh, um, 
uh, work done to to predict and prevent that. So I wanted the the same. I I want the same introspection to, to happen here. Absolutely. Yes. So so Patty, I know we do have more questions from our listeners. What is the next one that uh, that uh, that uh, we have? Oh, this goes back to the charges, or at least the uh, sentencing. Is it true that a conviction of seditious conspiracy comes with no possibility of parole? If so, in the case of a plea deal for lesser charges, is a conviction on the lesser charge potentially eligible for parole? Yeah. So there's no. So parole is a that's parole is a state law concept. Uh, it doesn't exist under federal criminal law. So you serve eighty five percent at least of the time that you get in federal court uh, in federal criminal. Uh, convictions. Uh, so even if you're on good behavior, you're going to serve a very substantial sentence. And ironically, I'm going to tell you another secret uh, about federal criminal sentencing that some people think is unfair, uh, others disagree, uh, is that no matter what these guys get convicted of, the judge really is going to be sentencing them to roughly the same thing. In other words, the judge, let's just say they're convicted of seditious conspiracy or they're convicted of uh, obstructing official proceeding. The judge is required to consider all the facts and circumstances of the offense and all of the facts and circumstances, you know, all their history and background of these individuals when making a decision. And so if they're convicted on either any one of these charges, uh, now, obviously, there's a maximum penalty, as Frank pointed out, very serious maximum penalties. But a lot of these 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 laws carry very, very significant maximum penalties. But the judge is going to look at all of the facts and circumstances regardless of the conviction. So even if you're acquitted on certain charges, uh, you know, for example, we had Miss Maxwell was, was acquitted on certain charges and convicted on others. She's going to get the same sentence because a judge is going to find by a preponderance of the evidence that they're, you know, make findings about what actually happened. And so really... That's one of the problems that a criminal defense attorney has in defending this case. And if I was looking at this from a criminal defense perspective, I was representing, which I thankfully am not and never would represent any of these individuals. But if I was and I was looking at it, put it, you know, hypothetically, what I would be telling my client is, do you think you can beat all of this? Because if you can't beat all of it, uh, the judge is still going to look at the same calculus, which is, you know. Uh, what what were you doing and what you were doing is staging an armed revolt at the ca- insurrection at the Capitol attack on the Capitol that scared the hell out of a lot of people, injured a lot of people, you know, resulted in death. Uh, it's not going to go well for you, regardless of what the conviction is. I want to take a step back here because I think one thing that folks don't understand, and there's been a lot of, I would say, concern from the public about what's going to happen. Why are these investigations taking so long? One thing I think would be helpful for everyone to understand is the amount of work that goes into an affidavit like this, because I don't think the public really understands the amount of time and care that goes into these paragraphs that we're seeing about communications and, and everything else that they've gathered to develop the evidence in this case. Yeah, I think one of the things that has kind of been a wake-up call for me is to watch this, the public's frustration with this case, these cases writ large, um, and daily on social media, just see people screaming for, why, why isn't Trump in handcuffs? Why, what, Merrick Garland needs to go. Chris Ray needs to get fired. And I'm like, oh my goodness. I, you know, And part of my mission 
I see on being t- on TV at all is to just help educate, right? And I get it. I get the frustration. I'm with you, but I have this thing, you know, 25 years in the FBI, and I can tell you that a simple, a so-called simple corruption case on a county commissioner could take three, four, five years to make. I mean, you, you think of the voluminous terabytes and whatever's larger than terabyte um, of data just collected from the knuckleheads who went into the Capitol and took pictures and videos. And then think about going backwards in time and collecting everyone's data, fo- you know, postings on Parler and Twitter and Facebook and you know, breaking encryption codes or getting lawful orders to do so, developing sources and informants, connecting all those dots. Renato, you you know prosecutors are being brought in from everywhere um, to handle the 700 or now more defendants, uh, Puerto Rico, Washington State, Nevada. Uh, you know, uh, all this is being done on Zoom. You're meeting your client on Zoom from across a continent. Every one of the 56 FBI field officers is is now stretched to the max, working almost nothing but this case, right? And people are going, why isn't Trump in handcuffs? Well, <laughs> okay, slow down, slow down. And, and you know, then there's this kind of artificial deadline that they've tied between justice and the, and the existence of the select committee. Oh, my God, the, the Republicans are going to win the House. They're going to make the select committee go away. Yes, by the way, they, if they win the House, they, they've said they're going to make the select committee go away. But that understand, that's not the DOJ criminal investigation, right? DOJ is not going away. So um, I, I don't have, I, yes, I have a sense of urgency to save our democracy, but I also understand these things take a very long time. And God forbid they lose a case. I mean, think about the impact of that, particularly a seditious conspiracy case where a jury or a judge says you don't have it, which, by the way, happens frequently. It, it you know, happened lately in seditious conspiracy. So you get that wrong, you are in trouble. So they're going to get it right and they're going to do it in their right time. Yeah, I um, I think that it's some definitely some wisdom there, Frank. You know, I, just to give everyone a sense, I was a federal prosecutor in Chicago in what was a larger district, okay, than the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office. It's actually, I think, the second largest in the country because it's all of Chicago, all of the, the northern part of Illinois, so all those suburbs, massive metropolitan area. And we had certain years where we, the numbers on federal, on criminal cases go from, you know, one and they, they keep, the numbers keep rising. We would have years where we wouldn't charge a thousand criminal cases in a year. So by the end of the year, we wouldn't hit 1,000 on the, you know, when they would stamp the, the criminal cases. There's what, 700 people have been charged already, I think, in these, this particular set of cases. So, and a small by a smaller uh, not not in terms of people because DC's got a lot of local prosecution, but in terms of just purely the the amount of federal work going on in that office, it's actually usually a smaller office. So I, I have to say that's a a major undertaking, and I think I, I would also just say to everyone, I mean, the average federal criminal investigation takes years. Uh, I, you know, both when I was a prosecutor, I'll tell you, I had investigations, particularly white collar cases. This one's a little more straightforward because it's hard to defend some of some of these cases are hard for the defendants. What's the defense? You know, you, you, you did enter the Capitol. Here's your photo. Uh, but 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 nonetheless, a white collar case or a more complicated case like a conspiracy case here could take years to put together. Certainly that's my experience. So 
if anything, this is really going at a breakneck pace as far as I'm concerned. But one thing I will just say, Frank, you know, you mentioned at the end, like our democracies in the line, people are concerned. I hear that. I do think that folks need our, the, the faith uh, that folks have in, in law enforcement saving our democracy may be a little misplaced. In other words, you know and I know. We've all had judges make decisions we don't agree with. We've all had juries come up back with head scratchers. And we've all had times where I'm sure you had times, 25 years at the FBI, where a prosecutor tells you you can't bring a case. You're like, are you kidding? There's so much evidence. You don't think this is a winner? Uh, where the prosecutors often turn down cases that might seem pretty good. We shouldn't be putting all of our eggs in the basket of law enforcement to save us. There's a lot that we need to do as citizens in, as, in coming together to try to, to make sure our, we preserve our democracy as well. Well, boy, I love this topic um, because I'm right with you on it. And, and throughout my career, I've seen the FBI particularly viewed as kind of the savior for whatever is the problem de jour Right. Of, of, so, for example, um, there was a time you might remember, Renato, a ton of uh, carjackings. Carjackings was the thing. What did Congress do? Give it to the FBI. Uh, OK, we, we, you know, we needed that like we needed another hole in the head. Like, oh, OK, yeah, but they're all local. They're not. Nobody's driving the car across state lines. Nope. Carjackings. Those are yours. OK. Uh, deadbeat dads. Deadbeat dads. Guys are not paying their child support. So it's systemic. What do we do? Give that to the FBI. Uh, okay, you know, we're talking about societal problems. And so when you look at the national strategy that came out several months ago, by the way, from the White House, new strategy to combat violent domestic extremism. And then Merrick Garland, with great fanfare, holds a press conference. I read the thing three times. It's a great strategy. Probably will never happen. But here's my point. Almost none of that, the stuff you see in that strategy is law enforcement. Almost none of it. And, and that's right. That's the way it should be. What does it talk about? Um, educating the public, especially kids, to be more savvy consumers of social media, regulating social media, um, um, uh, teaching uh, you know, curriculum that reminds people what, how we vote in this country. Um, you know, it, it's not uh, it's a whole of society solution to the point where you know, we've got to stop believing disinformation and we've got to start all pulling in the same direction. That's not a law enforcement solution. Yeah, I think this idea that law enforcement is going to solve all of society's problems, that's tough. And these problems, what gives rise to these hateful people, I mean, what causes a Yale Law School graduate to lead a group that wants to take up arms and perceives, I mean, I did some research on these guys. I mean, their their beliefs are insane. Uh for uh, what causes people to have these beliefs, um, I think these are complicated questions that require very significant answers from people beyond law enforcement officers, who, by the way, are some of the finest people I've ever worked with in my life, people who put themselves on the line every day. But that's their job is to identify criminal activity, investigate it, develop evidence in discrete cases, not to solve systemic societal problems. It's not what they're, they're tasked with doing. That's not what they're trained to do. So what, what uh, Frank, when you look at this, what I want to, I, I, I want to ask you here. So when you look at this, these set of indictments, what, what do you want people to take from this? When you're, what, we've got all these listeners here who are trying to make sense, trying to make sense of this, that they've got, they've got, obviously we have an ongoing investigation 
what 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 would you tell them? What should they be looking out for uh, in the weeks and months to come? Mm. So first, and people have gotten this ad nauseum now since these charges were announced, but this is a big deal. These are This is DOJ saying we're dead serious about getting to the bottom of this and holding people accountable as much as humanly possible. I mean, the only charge bigger in the U.S. code would be treason, and that requires the U.S. to be at war um, with an enemy and someone to be aiding and abetting that that other nation you're at war with so this is a huge deal it's 11 people charged in one day and it means this was organized this was coordinated this wasn't a bunch of people saying hey look i got inside the capitol take my photo and and you know the conspiracy end of this is going to go beyond these 11 people i i'm i'm i feel very confident saying that based on available information we have so far Look at look. Keep your eye on how the far right begins to spin this. It's already happened. Um, Fox News um, didn't cover this on uh, the night of the announcement, but rather chose to talk about how political ideology is being called terrorism today. That was how they spun this, right? Without actually saying any coverage that night of the of the sedition charges. Hey. Uh, you know, Tucker Carlson led off that night with um, political, that political ideology is now being called terrorism in this country. So, you know, um, that's no, by the way, no one's ever uttered those words, not the FBI director, not the attorney general. What they have said is that race based, hate based, violent extremism has become the number one terrorism threat. They did say that. So if Tucker Carlson thinks that that race based and, um, and hate based terrorism is actually his politics. Well, there you have it. So watch how the far right spins this. Watch how people start distancing, distancing themselves from the Oath Keepers. You know, Ted Cruz has a, there's a now infamous photo of him at a rally with uh, the uh, Oath Keepers flag flying high behind him. Um, watch people start walking away from the Oath Keepers. Um, and now watch as people, signs that people are starting to flip um, watch for additional charges across the Proud Boys, excuse me, the, yeah, the Proud Boys and the three percenters. But more importantly, let's don't ever look at this in a vacuum. Look at look at the people who are saying no to showing up at the select committee request. Jim Jordan, Mark Meadows, et cetera. Don't take that in a vacuum. W- what are they possibly afraid of? Are they afraid that uh, yeah, I did have a meeting with an Oath Keeper, or yeah, I knew there was going to be violence that day. That, that, don't take all of this separate and distinct. Put, start putting those pieces together, because that's what DOJ is doing. Yeah, I have to say, uh, I, I, very good uh, very good uh, analysis there. I will just say from, from my perspective that it's been interesting to see how this has undermined uh, the talking points that we've seen about the uh, January 6th from folks on the right, where they're talking about, you know, I think just a few hours beforehand, right, Britt, you was tweeting out, oh, it's not an insurrection. No one's char- been charged with insurrection. Now he's saying, well, everyone conspiracy is just with prosecutors charged when they can't make their case or some nonsense like that. Um, but I, I, so I do think it's changed things and I, I'm interested as well. I think that there, I agree with you. I, I'm, we'll see how far that conspiracy lands, but I definitely, uh, some of these people that are referred to in the indictment, for example, I, I, 
I would be very surprised if DOJ is not uh, building case already against those folks. Well, Frank, you've been fantastic. I'll tell you, I really always enjoy talking with you, and you bring such a wealth and, and breadth of experience uh, to this topic. Thank you so much for the time you spent talking with us today. Uh, it's been my pleasure, and uh, let's do it. Let's not wait for so much time to lapse between the next time. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. Topic.